Morning. How are we doing? Everybody awake? Ready to go? Uh, I'm, I'm going to try to get us out of here by one, so um, your, your attention and feedback will be very helpful with that. Just buckle up. This is our last Sunday in this series, the Enough Already series. So we'll start next week with, um, we're going to go through the letter of First Peter, a series called Be Strange, Love Strangers. So don't miss that. Come back for that next week. But uh, we're going to wrap up this, this conversation where I have been invading your personal space by talking about your stuff, your money, uh, and this conversation about having enough already. When we recognize that our king and our, our father in heaven is infinitely wealthy and extremely generous, uh, then we recognize that we have enough already and we can live in an open-handed way when it comes to our stuff, our material possessions and our finances. And so we've spent three weeks talking about that. We're going to wrap up today with a conversation about reckless generosity. If you've been around here very long, you've heard that phrase many times. We talk about this uh, every week. Uh, this is a value for us here at Cicero Christian Church. And I get, a, I get a lot of feedback on this particular value. When we do, our, we do a launch, you know, for those who are new, and we talk about reckless generosity. And I've had several people say, uh, now, come, come here, Adam. Uh, let me... Can I ask you a question about this reckless generosity thing? Because that doesn't sound right to me. Reckless to me sounds like foolishness, and I don't think I'm supposed to be foolish with my finances. How many of you have thought that about our reckless generosity value? All right, too ashamed to raise your hand. It's okay, cool. I'll talk to you about it later. I think that's a very common response. Reckless generosity feels foolish, right? Why would we be foolish? Because we're taught to be good stewards of our finances, right? And reckless and good steward do not seem to go together. There's some tension there. So let's wrestle with that tension. Let's talk about the opposite of reckless generosity. Not the opposite, but like, here's the other option. Cautious generosity is the other option. Let's describe cautious generosity. What does that look like? That looks like if I'm going to be cautiously generous, then I'm going to decide who I'm generous to based on merit. If if I think they deserve my generosity, then I'm happy to give it. If I think they're going to do something really good with it, then I'm happy to invest in that. That's cautious generosity. Cautious generosity also says I'm willing to give in a way that doesn't interrupt my lifestyle. As long as I can maintain the quality of life that I currently have, I'm happy to give beyond that. Cautious generosity would also say that if I give in a way that someone else notices my, my desire would be that they would think I'm being wise and a good steward. They would say, hey, that's a great use of that money. That's a good investment. That's cautious generosity. If you were described as cautiously generous, would you consider that to be a compliment? On the other hand, reckless generosity looks like this. Reckless generosity says, I'm going to give without judgment on the merit of the recipient. Like, I'm not going to try to look at them and decide if they deserve it or not, if they're going to do something good with it or not. I'm just going to give anyway. That's, that's reckless generosity, right? Reckless generosity also says, I am willing to give in a way that disrupts my lifestyle. I'm willing to give in a way that means I don't get to do the things, everything that I want to do. I'm willing to do that. That's reckless Generosity. Reckless generosity also says, I'm willing to give in a way that if someone else were to notice, they might look at what I'm doing and say, that's silly. That's foolish. Why would you do that with your money? I'm willing to do that. That's reckless generosity. 
So one feels like being a good steward, conscious generosity. The other one feels a little different, doesn't it? If you were described as a recklessly generous person, would you consider that to be a compliment? So here's, the, here's our problem with the idea of being a good steward. Do I think that you should be a good steward with what God has given you? Yes, unequivocally, absolutely. What does it mean to be a good steward? I think what we have learned, what I was taught means to be a good steward is that I am cautious with God's finances. God has entrusted me. That's what steward means. I've been entrusted with a little bit for a little while, and I'm going to be cautious with it. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to manage it really well. But I don't think anymore that that's what it means to be a good steward. I think what it means to be a good steward of God's resources is that I use them the way that God would use them. I think that's what it means to be a good steward. I'm going to use God's resources, the little bit that I have for a little while, the way that God would use them. And how does God use his resources? Would you describe God as cautiously generous or recklessly generous? Jesus describes God's generosity this way in Matthew chapter 5. He says this, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. If you want to be like God, love your enemies, so that you may be sons of your Father. For he makes his son rise on who? The evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the who? Unjust. Jesus is saying God is in charge of these resources called sunshine and rain. And God gets to decide who gets sunshine when they need it and who gets rain when they need it. God gets to decide. Is God looking at the world and looking at you and saying, well, I know you need a little rain this week, but you haven't been that good. I mean, let's be honest. You haven't been praying. You haven't been reading your Bible. You went off on your wife over something that was silly and like... You're just not going to get rain this week because you haven't been good. Is that how God functions? Jesus says no. Jesus says God sends rain on the evil and the good and sunshine on the just and the unjust. I got that backwards, didn't I? I did. It's okay. I'll ask for forgiveness later. That's, Jesus is describing to us the generosity of God and, and good stewardship. If good stewardship means I'm going to treat my resources the way God would treat my resources, then that means that I... I'm called to be recklessly generous as God is recklessly generous, right? So that's, that's God and Jesus talking. Let's get this on a more human level. Let's see uh, this event we're going to read from Luke chapter 7 about a human being, just like you and me, who was recklessly generous. In Luke chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 36. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to join, join me there. You can follow along on the screen. or Most of you probably had this memorized, don't you? Yeah, sorry, me neither. Uh, Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's home for dinner. Uh, this means, we've talked about that, that sitting down to dinner together is a very intimate thing in this culture, and it at least means that we're okay, that there are no problems between us. Sometimes it can mean more than that, but at very least, it means we're not enemies. And the way that this would work, if you're a, if you're a wealthy or influential person, you probably have a home uh, in or near the city, and that home is set up in a very certain way. It's set up so that your living quarters are in one space, and you have this open courtyard that kind of is, is visible to the public. And they would often have these dinners in this open courtyard where people walking by could look in and see who you're having over for dinner. So often, having a particular person over for dinner was kind of a, a message to the community that I'm I'm important, or 
that I at least I know what's going on in our town. And so Jesus is a very popular teacher, rabbi, so the Pharisee invites him over, and they're in a place where it's public. People can walk by and see who's, who's there. Here's what happens. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. He went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering, answering what? Did the Pharisee ask a question out loud? No. He's thinking in his head, Jesus is not a prophet. And so what does Jesus do? He responds to the thought that the guy had in his head, thereby proving himself to be a prophet. Okay, good. Glad, glad you're keeping up. He, answering, Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I think that's a very intentional phrase. Simon knew the woman was there, but Jesus is not sure that Simon has seen the woman. What Simon has seen so far is her sin. That's what he saw. Jesus says, do you see this woman? Maybe there's more to her than her sin. Do you see this woman? Jesus says. I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Customs of the day would dictate, if you invite someone over for dinner, that the first thing you would offer them is to have their feet washed, probably by the lowest servant or the servant that got in trouble last week and is on foot washing duty. You invite this person in, they're going to sit down at your table with dirty, stinky feet, and so you offer to have their feet washed. Simon did not offer to have Jesus' feet washed. If you're friends with this person who comes over, you would greet them with an embrace and a kiss on the cheek. Simon did not greet Jesus this way. If you respect the person that comes over and you consider them an equal or maybe even above you, you would have oil poured on their head as a sign of respect and generosity. And Simon did not do this for Jesus. And Jesus points out that all of the lack of courtesy and disrespect that Simon has shown to Jesus, this woman has done the exact opposite. She washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. She kissed his feet like he's royalty. And then she takes this jar of perfume. A lot of Jewish women would have um, an alabaster jar of perfume that they would wear around their necks in a culture where you don't shower every day. Ladies, you want to smell nice. And so you have, if you can afford it, you have this jar of perfume you wear around your neck. 
and for which we're all grateful, right? And she takes this, and it was worth uh, up to probably about a year's wages. So just get in your head, how much do you make in a year? Take that number and tie it around your neck, okay? That's what she's bringing to the party. She takes that ointment, breaks it, pours it out, all of it, on Jesus' feet. A year's wages, gone in a second. If Jesus is concerned about stewardship the way that you and I were maybe taught stewardship, he should be indignant at this. What are you doing? A year's wages in a second? That's not being a very good steward of what God has given you, is it? Woman, you should have kept this. Maybe you could sell it and give the money to the poor. Why waste this in this moment? But Jesus doesn't criticize her for throwing away a year's wages in a second. Instead, he says that this tells me something really important about her. What does it tell Jesus? He uses this story with the Pharisee to say um, what it tells him about this woman. He says there's two guys. One owes 50, the other owes 500. So one owes 10 times as much as the other. Both of their debts are canceled. Neither one of them could pay. When you can't pay in this culture, you got a couple options. You can sell one of your uh, family members into slavery or you can go to prison. Uh, until your debt is paid off by your family while you're in jail. Both of them, their debts are canceled. Who's going to love him the most? Well, the one who, who was forgiven the most. And Jesus said, look at this woman. All you've seen in her is her sin. And I'm here to tell you, her sins are forgiven. How do I know her sins are forgiven? Look at how she loves me. Look at how she loves me. Her generosity, her extravagant gift is proof that she gets forgiveness. She understands it. She gets grace. She, she understands how far from God she was and what a miracle it is that she can be at the feet of Jesus. And it's proven by this act of reckless, extravagant, foolish generosity. I think we look at that and we go, that's just, I mean, that doesn't make sense. That feels wasteful. I don't understand why God would call us to something like that. I uh, grew up in um, a baseball culture. I uh, just loved baseball. My dad coached for a while and um, just great. So when I had a younger brother, for which I was very excited because I already had a younger sister and I thought the next one's got to be a boy. So he was God loves me, and uh, provided me with a younger brother, eight years younger than me, and we would go out in the yard and play uh, baseball, just the two of us. One would hit, and the other catch, and then we'd swap. Our trouble was always finding a decent baseball. Uh, can anybody remember this? Like, how hard is it to find and hold on to a decent baseball, right? Um, we couldn't find them. I, I could have been in the movie The Sandlot. That could have been me, you know, selling recycling bottles to get enough money for a baseball, but... We struggled all the time. So I, he wanted to go out and play baseball. So I said, go find us a ball and I'll go out and play with you. So I grabbed my glove. Sure enough, he comes out with a ball and a bat and he hits it and I catch it. And as soon as I grab it, I realize um, this is different. This is a good leather baseball. Where in the world did this come from? We don't usually have these. These are nice. I mean, that was a, I mean, that was a, a nice thing. But I didn't think anything about it. I threw it back in. He hit it a few more times. And I, I couldn't get over how good this ball was. And so I just asked him, hey, where did you get that ball? Uh, it was in the house. And I thought, nope. We, didn't, we don't have balls like that in the house. Well, 
Uh, we did actually have a couple of nice baseballs in the house because when I was uh, nine years old, I lived in a town called uh, Birdstown, Tennessee, where nothing ever happened, right, Tim? Tim knows. Nothing ever happened except one time in 1985, Hank Aaron came, came to a mall within driving distance of our town, Cookville or Crossville, I can't remember. He came to the mall, and Hank Aaron signed uh, some baseballs that day for me. We had three baseballs that got signed. One went to my cousin. The other two were from my, my brother and I. Those were the only nice baseballs in our home. So I began to look at this ball that my brother has hit now several times, and uh, I see the autograph right there, Hank Aaron, Hammer and Hank, Home Run King, on this baseball, and I lost my mind. I thought, what have you done? Do you realize what you've done? You've taken this Hank Aaron signed baseball and you've treated it like common baseball garbage. Like you can't do that. You can't hit with this ball. And so I got mad and I'm yelling at him and we sit and we're trying to have a conversation. And, and, and my brother was, I don't know, seven or six or seven at the time. And I know he couldn't really get to where he wanted to get to. But what I think my brother wanted to say to me, looking back, is, but wouldn't you rather play baseball than look at one? And now, at my stage in life, I would answer that question with a yes. I would rather play baseball than look at a baseball. Wouldn't you? I mean, come on. Let's be real. How much fun is it just to look at it? Yeah, it says Hank Aaron on it. By the way, he has the one with the grass stains. I have the one. That's still in pretty good condition. <laughs> and sometimes I feel this way about our, our attitude towards generosity and the way that we view our finances and the way that we view our stuff. Yeah, it's a gift from God, and it's an incredible gift. If you've got stuff, if you've got a good income, if you've got nice resources, assets, whatever it is, absolutely great gift. But wouldn't you rather play? Wouldn't you rather get into the kingdom of God and participate in what God is doing in the world than stand back, hold on to your resources, and watch? Which would you rather do? I think God is like, let's, let's go. Let's play. You're, you're going to have to open your hands. You're going to have to let go of some stuff, but let's, let's play. Get into the game. Get into the kingdom. Participate in what I'm doing. And the way that we view our stuff, I think, matters and how, how much we're willing to just jump in. And what may look like foolishness to some is just a sign that we recognize what forgiveness and grace really means to us. So our open-handed experiment of the week. We've had a challenge like this every week uh, where we've asked you to consider how you view your stuff. And maybe I think the first week we talked about Find something that you typically spend money on that you could do without and just stop spending money on that thing and give some money away. Last week we talked about go through your home, find some stuff that you don't use anymore, sell it, give the money away. I've gone through three weeks of a series on generosity and not once talked to you about giving to the church. But you knew that wasn't going to last. That's what we're going to talk about today. So here's the open-handed uh, challenge experiment challenge of the week. I want to encourage you, challenge you to reevaluate your giving to the church. I think we all understand this is something that's part of the life of a believer. This is just what we do. We contribute to the needs. You can, you can trace this back to Acts chapter 2 really easily. The, the believers pitched in to get things done. Everybody contributed. 
And I just want to challenge you to reevaluate your giving to the church. And I want to do that uh, through a, a, a passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, Paul is writing to this church in Corinth because he's on his way there. Uh, he has told them to gather, collect some money that he is going to come and pick up and take it to Jerusalem because Jerusalem, the Christians there have been enduring a famine. Things are, are, are not good for them. They, they don't have food to eat or money to buy food. So he's collecting money from the churches around Greece and Asia Minor. He's going to take this back to Jerusalem for the Christians there. So he's telling them, hey, I'm on the way. I'm going to come get this money so you guys be ready. And he wants to inspire them to be generous. So here's how he does it. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. This is a group of people that have been north of Corinth, Christians there. He says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. It makes sense, right? No, it doesn't make sense at all. Go back and read that sentence again. Let's look at this again. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. That sentence makes no sense. Hey, guys, I got to tell you about this church in Macedonia. They are struggling, man. They are just barely getting by. They're dealing with some terrible stuff. So you know what they did? They gave a lot. Why would they do that? Four, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in relief of the saints, begging us for the favor of taking part. The only begging that happens to me when it comes to finances is, please don't preach about giving. Like, Adam, I'm begging you, don't preach about giving. <laughs> no one wants to hear that. That's what I get. They are begging for the chance to participate in the kingdom of God and what God is doing to take care of the saints in Jerusalem. And this, he says, verse 5, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So Paul sets up an example for them. He says, hey, I just want you to know what's happening in Macedonia. Now, he's not using this to guilt trip them, to shame them. He's trying to inspire them to be generous. He says, these people are struggling, but they got it in their heads that by giving, they could participate in the kingdom of God. And they said, let us in. We want to play. We want to play. We don't want to watch this happen from, from a distance. We want to participate. And we're willing to sacrifice to make that happen. Is that, is that your attitude towards giving? If not, I would like to ask you to reevaluate and reconsider. So the first thing I want to ask you to do is give with a purpose. Paul says that uh, these people planned what they were going to give. Do you plan what you're going to give? Or is it kind of like, well, things are a little tight this month, so we're going to hold back. Or, you know, we've got a little extra this month, so we'll throw a little extra in. Or do you have a plan? Because you've sat down with your family, you've prayed about this, you've talked about it together, and you've decided, here's what we're going to give. Is, is that how it goes? I, I want to encourage you, if you're not giving with a purpose right now, give on purpose. Whatever it is you give, give because you've decided through prayer, conversation with your family, this is how much we're going to give, okay? Uh, challenge two, give cheerfully. Give cheerfully. Uh, I think it's really easy uh, for many of us who grew up in church to give out of a sense of obligation. We were just always taught, this is what you do. You, you start tithing when you get your first job, and you just keep tithing 
till you're dead. Like that's just what we're taught. And so that's what you do. Um, but where is cheerful giving in that scenario? Why, why would anyone give cheerfully? Well, the Macedonian Christians were pretty excited about giving. They were begging earnestly for a chance to participate in this. Jesus looks at this woman who poured out a year's wages on his feet, and he saw joy. Where does that come from? Where does the ability to give generously, cheerfully come from? I think Jesus nailed it when he he said, her her sins are forgiven. That's why she's pouring this gift out on, on me. She understands what forgiveness means. His message to the Pharisee was pretty sharp if you're paying attention. Jesus was looking at this Pharisee saying, you don't think that you need to be forgiven, do you? You probably think you're a pretty good guy. And when you think you're a pretty good guy, and you don't really need God's grace or God's forgiveness, why would you be generous? Why would you pour out love? But she knows. She knows who she is. She knows what she's done. And she understands that God's forgiveness and grace saved her. So she, she's able to give generously and recklessly and cheerfully. So the question about giving cheerfully probably comes down to a question of, are you aware of how much you need? God's forgiveness and grace and how generous he is with it. Every single morning you wake up, his grace is there for you. That's where cheerful giving comes from. And finally, I just want to ask you to give in a way that grows your faith, that grows your faith. So the specific challenge today is to add 1% to whatever you're giving. Add 1% to whatever you're giving, okay? If you're giving zero and you're going to, the challenge is to start giving 1% of your income, that's a big jump from zero to something, that's a step of faith. And I would encourage you, if you're giving zero, pray about it, sit down and talk to your family, and go 1%. If you're giving 5%, pray about it, consider, go 6 Here's Here's what would happen here at Cicero Christian Church if everyone accepted this challenge. So currently, we bring in almost 60000 a month. And so um, if you assume that everyone is tithing, um, which is probably not true. Some aren't. Some are do- doing more. Just, but if you ballpark it, everybody's tithing, and everybody goes from 10% to 11%. We would bring in an extra $6,000 a month, okay? I, I had someone else check my math, so I'm pretty confident in that number. That didn't come from me. Andy helped me with that. And you're all like, oh, Andy, okay, we believe it. All right, so... Uh, so what would we do with an extra $70,000 a year? Are we going to give the staff raises and bonuses? No, nope, that is not what we would do. What would we do? We have some serious opportunities to invest in the kingdom here. Our student and children's spaces are packed out, packed out. If you've been here on a Wednesday night when those middle schoolers are here, you're like, that room is not big enough for that many middle schoolers. It's just not. It's awesome, but they need more space. Our children on Sunday mornings have moved out into the gym not an ideal educational environment, but they're out of space in their room. So if we had more funds, we would invest in better spaces for our children and students. Our nursery is in need of some updates and upgrades. And we could, we could put new flooring in, new cabinets, if we had a little extra. You've seen the missions that we support. You've been out to the wall. You've heard all month long us talk about these different mission partners that we have that we really believe in. And some of them are underfunded. And we would like to add to what we're contributing to what God is doing around the world. If we had a little extra, we could, we could do that. 
our outreach events that we do, our day of service we had last month, we, we could expand that with more funds. All, all of these things are investments in the kingdom of God that, that we could do if, if everybody just said, hey, I'm going to buy faith, I'm going to add 1%, just 1%. That's what we could do. Now, should it matter what we do? Should that determine whether you give or not? I don't know, probably not. But I want you to know that we're committed to being faithful. We're committed to being recklessly generous. And we're committed to investing every dime that we possibly can into the kingdom of God. That's what's going to happen if you do that. Uh, we, we talked about um, the Macedonian uh, Christians and how Paul used them as an example. So I want to share an example with you from right here in our own church family. Uh, a couple months ago, uh, there was a lady in our church, single, single lady, who, whose car, her car broke down. And she didn't have the money to get it fixed. And so we began to look for resources and ways to help her get her car fixed. And there was a family that found out about it and said, um, we think that we can help. And so, you know, you think, are they going to help, you know, contribute to getting her car fixed? No, they gave her a car, a pretty decent car, a really awesome car. They just gave it to her. They, they had a chance to meet her and to pray with her, tell her that they loved her and God loves her. And they gave away a car. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of looking at that going, that's, that might be reckless. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I could give away a car. And I don't care who you are, how much you have, that's a big, generous gift, right? Well, why, why would they do that? Do they do that so that they would, you know, get credit and reward? I was told that if I mentioned their names, uh, they would punch me in the nose. Like, that's how much they don't want you to know who this is. They're not doing it for fame. They're not doing it for recognition. I think it comes from a place of understanding God's grace and forgiveness and that God has blessed them with, with this much for this period of time, and they're going to use it the way God would use it, which is to be recklessly generous and pour that out. Now, maybe you can't give away a car, but maybe you could add 1% to what you're currently giving. Maybe you could find a way to be recklessly generous in a way that grows your faith, give on purpose, give cheerfully. What do you think? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands right now, but would you stand up? Yeah, go ahead and stand up. Yeah, that's a real, sorry. I don't know, the way I said that maybe just was weird, but yeah. In real life, stand to your feet, okay. I just want us to close with a prayer. And if you have the courage to pray this prayer, let me give me that. If you have the courage to pray this prayer with me, I just want to ask you to do this. This is just between you and God. I'll never know, and I don't know how much you give. I don't know how much anyone gives but me, okay? So I, I'm, I'm not targeting anybody. This is between you and God. Always has been, always will be. But here's the prayer. God, if I increase my giving, will you still provide? Will I still have enough? If I increase my giving, will I still have enough? It's a question of what do I really believe about God? What's the difference between recklessness and foolishness? If, if my Father in heaven is infinitely wealthy and extremely generous, then do I believe that if I increased, I would still have enough? Would you pray that prayer with me? Father God, I want to ask you on behalf of, of my family, to help me with this. 
if, if I were to increase my giving, Father, would I still have enough? Would you continue to provide? God, if I were to increase my giving, would I be able to participate in the work of the kingdom at a different level? If I were to increase my giving, God, would you open my eyes and my heart up to how abundant your wealth really is? And I pray for my brothers and sisters here today that you would show us what this opportunity is leading us toward, a greater faith, greater participation in the kingdom and eyes that are wide open to your extravagant generosity to us. We pray that you would get the glory for any good thing that happens. In Christ's name, amen.